Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 again. So we come back to one of the more beloved passages in all of Scripture, one of the more quoted verses in all of the Bible, a key mile marker, as some of you know, on what has been called the Romans Road. It is the verse that has been turned to so frequently by so many people to clarify the gospel because that is its purpose. Its purpose is to make the gospel plain, to make the gospel clear. And this is the way Paul says it in the simplest terms in verse 9 of Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now those verses come within a context, obviously, a context of unbelief. They're talking to us about what it means to believe, but they're really being given in the context of unbelieving Israel. Paul is addressing this issue of why, for so many generations, Israel has not believed. They've rejected the truth. And his message, among all these other things, is this. It's not because the message of the gospel is too difficult. Their unbelief is not because the message is unattainable. They missed it, Paul says, because, all the way back in verse 3, because of a lack of understanding, or we might say a misunderstanding, which Paul ultimately says is based on their refusal to submit to God's righteousness. It was a willful misunderstanding, it was a willful rejection, a willful rebellion against God. And because, as Paul will make clear, the Word of God was so very plain to them, there is no other explanation. The Word, as Paul says in verses 5 through 9, or 5 through 8, the Word in the Old Testament was very near. It was near It was, we might say, right before their eyes, but they rejected it. They rejected what God said about righteousness. They rejected what God declared about their righteousness. And they were seeking instead to establish their own. They rejected, we might say, His pathway of salvation. And they were seeking to establish their own. Which is really just amazing That is so amazing to think that you have the right to define the way of salvation. To imagine that you get to invent how you are saved. Or you get to define the way that you're declared right before God. That anyone other than God would be able to do that. That would be like you, the criminal, coming before the judge having been caught red-handed in whatever and saying, okay, judge, this is the way it's going to be. This is how this is going to go down. You're going to approve of everything that I just did because I'm the one who makes the rules. That would be audacious and it would beg the very quick judgment against you. 
But this is what Israel was doing. They were seeking not to submit to God and His definition of salvation. But they were seeking to define their own. They were wanting to write the rules. They were wanting to say what it is that makes them just before God. Well, like so many, Israel was deceived. Like so many, they will reach a day where Paul says in verses 11 and 12, they'll be ashamed. They will stand with some deep and unfortunately eternal shame before their judge. Because not only did they reject his way of salvation, they rejected it when it was so plain, so easy, right in front of them. The word, Paul says, was near. It was near. And this is really what he's trying to to state all the way through the passage. It's simple, it's simple, it's close. And you will therefore be judged all the more strictly for rejecting it. This is a message, as we started to see last week, that undermines and exposes all of the excuses, all of the false notions that keep you from Christ. He articulates at least four of them in this passage. And as we started to see last week in verses 4 and 5, this message of the gospel, the message of faith ends false hope in the law. That's what he's saying when he says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It just undermines all of these false notions that Israel had that by maintaining some standard of righteousness in their own life, they're going to, uh, to earn a standing before God. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does them will live by them. If you're able to, if you could live by those laws, then sure, you could be saved, but the reality is you can't. Or as Paul says in Galatians, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the reality is, no law has ever been given. Because the law is powerless. You can write it all over your walls, You can post it all over your dashboard. You can memorize it all you want. You can discipline yourself, deny yourself, do everything you want. You can give it your best efforts and still you cannot earn anything before God. And so this message of the gospel just ends all that. It just obliterates all of that hope. Secondly, Paul says it eliminates excuses of difficulty. If you were one of those who were thinking that by extraordinary efforts that you're going to clean up your life so that you can present something to God that He would accept, this message just absolutely obliterates all that. Because he says the righteousness based on faith, in verse 6, doesn't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What other thing must I do? What mother other thing must I find in order to achieve salvation? This was a quotation, by the way, from the Old Testament. 
Because God already anticipated that in Israel's failure, in their failure to find salvation, they will find excuses. Which every man and woman does. Things aren't going their way. They feel their distance from God. And rather than looking at themselves and their own failures, they look to blame God. They look to suggest that somehow He hasn't given what's necessary. So it's up to them. They're going to have to mount up to heaven. They're going to have to dig down to the abyss. They're going to have to do all of these things, which by inserting in parentheses there, Christ, Paul is saying, Christ has already done for you. He's come down from heaven. He's risen up from the grave. Everything that could possibly need to be done, he's already done. And so what does it say, verse 8? The word then is very near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that's the word of faith that we proclaim. It is, it is so close. It is so close. And this is the tragedy of Israel. This is the tragedy of everyone who hears the preaching of the gospel and walks away to eternal damnation. This is the tragedy. Is the gospel is right here. If you're in this room today, if you're hearing my voice today, it is right here. It is that simple. It's simple as you confessing your pride, acknowledging your sin, uh, uh, admitting your failure, and embracing exactly what God says that you must embrace, which really takes us to Paul's third point in this passage, is that this message of faith establishes the Lordship of Christ. Or we might say it, it establishes the necessity of the Lordship of Christ. Paul's explaining this even still, this simple message saying, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how easy it is. That's how clear it is. Easy to understand, and from that sense, easy to respond to. The gospel is amazingly simple. Salvation is amazingly simple. It demands just this simple response, or the way Paul puts it, it may sound like two responses, but really it's, it's one response, we may say, manifest both inwardly and outwardly. Outwardly confessing with your mouth and inwardly believing with your heart. In fact, those words, mouth and heart, could be in, in uh, quotation marks because Paul is taking them out of the Deuteronomy quotation. He's just simply saying that what was mentioned all the way back in Deuteronomy 30 is still true today, that this message of faith has always been this simple expression that God demands of us, both inwardly and outwardly. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Don't get caught up, by the way, in the order 
with which Paul gives those, as if one thing comes first and then another thing comes after that sequentially. These are not sequential things. These are simultaneous, we might say, because, in fact, in verse 10, Paul reverses the order of the two things. He's not talking about one thing that happens first and then another that happens after that. What he's talking about are two expressions of the same response, one of them inward and one of them outward. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. It's that simple. That's how you're saved. Or more specifically, that is how you will be saved. That's what Paul says here in the future tense. He's talking about a future salvation. He's not, in other words, concerned with some feel-good message about inner peace and about prosperity. He's not talking about a message to straighten out all of your problems right now. He's focused on the ultimate judgment. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, that you might have some hope. You might believe now that you have hope. You might have some imagination that whenever you stand before God, He's going to be okay with you because of how you judge yourself. But that's really not the issue. The issue is not how you judge yourself. The issue is how He judges you. And it's a false hope if your hope is anywhere but that in which He has demanded. So He's made the way very simple, very plain. So plain that if you reject it, if you reject it, it's not because it's too complicated. It's not because religion is too hard. It's simply because of the hardness of your heart. And his message is this, first of all, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Just the fact that he is Lord, he is your Lord, which first and foremost just indicates submission. It indicates that you belong to him, that he is your master, we might say. Your life is yielded to Him in every way. Not that you know even what all those ways are right now. Not that you even know what tomorrow He'll demand of you. Not that you understand everything in His Word. But you have an attitude of yieldedness. So that whatever you understand Him to be asking of you, you are willing to do. That is what it means. You acknowledge His Lordship, His ownership over your life. This is what it is to be a believer, to be a Christian. Paul says to the uh, Colossians, this is the way that you received Jesus Christ as Lord. This is the way you received Him, and he says this is the way you're supposed to walk in Him. In other words, this isn't just a, a one-time confession. This is the pattern of your life. You receive Him, and this becomes the basis of your life. In fact, the Bible appeals to the Lordship of Jesus over and over again, so that if this was not a part of your life, the Scripture doesn't make sense. It is because of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17 says, that you're supposed to do all that you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything you do is universal. It's because of... The Lordship of Christ that Paul tells the Ephesians that you're to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. He tells the Philippians that they're not to quarrel with one another 
but live in harmony in the Lord. Or Romans 14 and 15, you're not to pass judgment against a brother in matters of preference or in matters of prudence. Why? Because the one, he says, it is before his own master that he stands and falls, and he'll be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's not your place. A recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ means that you refrain from that kind of judgment over a brother or sister. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ that you follow the instructions of the apostles. Paul tells them, the Thessalonians in chapter 2, or even later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that you respect and esteem the leaders that God has placed over you in the church. That's because of the lordship of Jesus Christ, he says. Because of the lordship of Jesus Christ, you turn away from false teaching, he tells Timothy. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1, because of the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're not ashamed of the message of the gospel. All of these things, Paul frames them within the context of Christ's lordship over your life. So the question is not, uh, it is not, well, what does this really mean to me? How does this really benefit me? How does this affect me? It's no longer the question. If you are a believer, the question is, what does the Lord demand? Over and over again, he tells us the Lordship of Jesus Christ impacts our lives. And so confessing Jesus as Lord is not a one-time act. It is the whole expression of your life. You have yielded your life completely to Him in all that He wants to do with it, whether it is difficult or whether it is easy, whether it is going to be challenging for a season of life, whether it's going to be humbling for a season of life, whatever it is, the Lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ drives you to the next act of obedience. Because you trust Him. You follow Him. You yield to Him. By the way, He's given us these continual reminders, even within our worship, We are to baptize people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come together to eat what Paul calls the Lord's table. There are every indication that the early church celebrated the Lordship of Jesus Christ through hymns like like Philippians chapter 2. Or... Or, or certain, we might say, doctrinal confessions that appear to be retained for us. Or prayers like Maranatha, which is really a, an Aramaic expression that is kept in the Greek text because it was probably so sacred to the early church. Come, Lord Jesus, is translated. The Lordship of Jesus was always on their lips. They spoke of Him as their Lord. They prayed to Him as their Lord. They worshipped Him as their Lord. They sang about Him as their Lord. This is what a Christian is. This is synonymous with being a Christian. That is the outward expression of your response to Him. Receiving and confessing that Jesus is the absolute Lord of your life. But Paul also says... You must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is the central claim of the gospel. The gospel rises or falls on the truth of this. 
So much so that Paul tells the Corinthians that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus was only crucified but wasn't raised, then everything that we're about is just a hoax. Everything that we do here on Sunday morning and everything we do in our midweek and our Bible studies, all of it is just an absolute smokescreen. It's futile if Jesus was not raised. You have to believe in this. You might think that this is all really about the importance of moral virtue, being reminded of good life lessons, finding strong relationships and friendships within the church. You might think that it's all about the importance of of, uh, just having a, a religious focus, or you might assume that we are all involved with church because we just understand that there's a spiritual side of us that just needs to be uh, uh, ministered to somehow. You might have all these motives and reasons for being involved with the church, but you've never been confronted with the reality of the resurrection. Paul says, if you haven't, if you haven't accepted that, then you cannot be saved. This is the central challenge of saving faith, to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Based on the testimony of the apostles, based on the testimony of their word, which has come to us, we believe that not only was Jesus crucified, but that He was raised bodily from the grave to live forever. The Bible is unmistakably clear about that. Back in Romans chapter 4, Paul said, or he spoke of Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. Or we might even say it this way, he was raised for our salvation. It was central. Central to our salvation. Primary. Because to receive salvation is to receive salvation from death. To receive salvation is to escape death because death is the primary curse of sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. And so if you have death as the primary curse of sin and you have a Savior who is defeated by death, then what you have is a Savior who is defeated by sin. That's the logic that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the logic of the gospel. To have Jesus not risen from the dead would mean one undeniable fact that the curse of death still reigns. Most importantly, it reigns over Jesus. It reigns over Him. Death would not be defeated. Your salvation would be worthless. It would be like having a billion dollar check but no bank to cash it. The resurrection is absolutely necessary if you want to have any hope of salvation. People have always tried to construct a Christianity without one for centuries now. They have rejected the resurrection. They've tried to reduce 
Christianity to just a set of moral principles or some sort of self-help religion, some sort of uh, feel-good story that you have on Sunday morning and you go home and you have a pep in your step because you had some pep talk. But they imagine that something like the resurrection, this is just first century superstition, as if the resurrection was somehow easier for them to believe back then than it is for us to believe today. As if, I don't know, maybe they had resurrections all the time. No. We understand resurrection to be what we might call impossible because we've never seen anyone resurrected. We know that when people die, they go to the grave and they stay there. And we've observed it over and over and over and over and over again, so much so that it is a scientific fact in our minds. People don't rise from the dead. Except for this. We've never known someone to die who had no sin. Right? I mean, all we've ever examined is the death of sinners. Have you ever examined the death of a sinless person? Let me tell you, there's only one. And he didn't stay dead. And the reason he didn't stay dead is because he had no guilt. The whole reason that he even was crucified on the cross is because he bore the wrath of God on behalf of your sin. But he didn't stay dead because he had no sin of his own. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God with glory by the resurrection. It was the resurrection which validated the fact that he had no sin. And so he conquered both sin and the grave and death by the resurrection and secured forever our salvation. A resurrected Savior is the only kind of Savior that you could have. So this is why Paul says, look, to be saved, to have any hope of salvation, is to confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it is to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. To believe that is to be a Christian. That's the content of what you believe. But notice in verse 10, Paul explains the effect of this belief. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's explaining, verse 9, how this salvation takes place apart from any works, apart from doing anything, apart from achieving anything. How do you become righteous? Well, you you become righteous because when you believe, God declares you to be justified. He makes a a legal declaration over you. He credits you, as we saw in Romans chapter 4, with righteousness. And with that justification, we confess our humble submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As I said, these aren't separate acts. They aren't sequential acts. It's not some sequence that you can pull apart. Paul had already made that clear in verse 9 when he mentions both of them are necessary in order to be saved. Confessing and believing, they are inseparable expressions of the same response to God. In fact, that combination of the two eliminates all the false ideas of salvation that some people have. For example, it eliminates the idea of a private faith. That you have some personal faith, but you just don't talk about it with others. You have some 
something between you and God. It's not something that you impose on others. It's something you keep quiet about. It's not something that you feel like you ought to share with other people. In other words, this is the person who claims an inner faith but with no outward confession. Jesus warned about that kind of faith in Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the Father and the angels. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels and God. There is no such thing as a private faith. Jesus is talking specifically about false disciples in that paragraph. And he's talking about those who would claim to be his followers. And yet when put to the test, they deny the Lord. They, they hide their faith either by their silence or by their actions or even by their words. He's not, by the way, talking about those occasional moments of weakness when we all look back with regret. Wishing we had given a better testimony and a better witness. He's talking about the pattern of your life. These are the people who are ultimately driven by the fear of men rather than the fear of God. They're not true disciples. They're pretend disciples. They only wear a mask. And since their whole purpose is to please people around them, they will confess perhaps Jesus when they're in the company of others who are friendly, but when they're not, they will not confess Him. They, we might say, light a candle and put it under a bushel, which if you've ever tried, you know. It cannot stay aflame. It goes out. It must have air. It must have exposure to keep burning. To confess Jesus Christ as Lord is the answer of that burning fire within your life. Calvin says you can't have that inner fire without some heat or smoke. And if it's not there, If that confession's not there, if you think somehow that you have some sort of private faith that is just between you and God, listen to the words of Scripture. That is not saving faith. Saving faith confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. It also eliminates another idea, not just the idea of private faith, but the idea of hypocritical faith. This is a faith that's all about confession. It's all about just telling people that you believe. This is what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here is the confessor. Here is the person who is boasting and proud to say, Lord, Lord. But the problem is, it is superficial showmanship. It's all about 
pleasing people, not pleasing God. And so what you have is they pretend in public to be all about God when in private there is no genuine submission to the Lord. There is no sincere yielding to Him in times of challenge, in times of difficulty. All of His calls for selflessness, for mercy go unheeded. It is a hypocritical faith. And it's not a saving faith. It's not a saving faith. Because there is ultimately no dying to self. There is ultimately, ultimately no yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we might say it eliminates the idea of a partial faith. A partial faith. This is that notion that you receive Jesus as your Savior, but have not yet submitted to Him as your Lord. It just eliminates that. It eliminates this idea that some people have constructed, sometimes to comfort themselves over the evident uh, lack of Christian life in their loved ones. They know that a child or a parent or somebody like that made some public expression of faith at some point earlier in their life, but ever since then, they've had no spiritual appetite, they had no interest in the things of God, they've really given no evidence of a Christian life, and so they manufacture this idea of a partial faith. Oh, they just, they've received Jesus as Savior, but they haven't yet accepted Him as Lord. This just goes out the window, because Paul says, look, in order to be saved, you must have both. And you're kidding yourself if you're here this morning and you think that you have somehow, because of a prayer or because of some commitment that you made in some religious service, that somehow you have secured eternal salvation. When in your life you have no intent of, of submitting to the Lordship at all right now, you're kidding yourself to think that somewhere down the road you're going to do that at some subsequent period of life. There is no such thing as that kind of partial faith. Saving faith confesses Christ as Lord and believes in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is the true gospel. It is amazingly clear. And it's not too far away from you. And it's not some incredibly difficult demand that you have to go out and achieve. Paul says it's right in front of you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. All you have to do is respond. Which takes us really to our fourth and final point about this message of faith in this section. The message of the gospel eradicates barriers of privilege. It eradicates barriers of privilege. Or Paul says, because this response is so simple... The scripture says in verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting again from Isaiah 26, 28 uh, verse 16. He already quoted it back in Romans 9, 33. But here he quotes the rest of the verse, kind of showing that he hasn't left the main topic at hand. He's making the point that faith has always been the requirement of God. It has always been the necessary requirement for salvation, even in the history of Israel, even in their Old Testament scriptures. And since it was only faith, not the law, 
There has always been a universal availability to God. In other words, salvation has never been limited just to the Jews. This is why Paul goes on to say in verse 12, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's just making this categorical statement, quoting the Old Testament, showing that this has always been the case. Because it has always been the the same simple way that you approach God. As he says in verse 12, God bestows His riches on all who call on Him. He doesn't have a limited amount of grace. He doesn't have a limited amount of favors. He doesn't have a limited amount of mercy. I mean, if you come to me and ask for a favor... I would do my best to help you, and then someone else comes, and someone else comes. I'm going to run out of resources before long. That's not the way God is. Everyone who comes to Him, He has such an abundance. He can give His favor to all. He doesn't, in other words, reserve His riches just for a select few. There is no spiritual elitism Those who get to God first get to tap into His riches. Doesn't matter if you came to God first or if you came to God last. Doesn't matter if you were born into a Bible-believing home or this is the first time you've ever heard the Bible. It doesn't matter. God's riches haven't been tapped out. He has an abundance of riches waiting on all who call upon Him. Everyone. Everyone who hears the Word of God, it is right in front of you. Israel had privileges, no doubt. Paul has mentioned them in Romans 9, all the way back in Romans chapter 3. They had access to the Word of God. They had prophets. They had teachers. They had lots of privileges. But that privilege did not mean exclusivity. The privilege of being raised under the constant exposure of the truth, that's a privilege. The privilege of being raised where you're always pointed to God, that's a privilege. But it doesn't mean that only you then have privileged access to God. God is just as ready to save the Gentile as He is the Jew. He's just as ready to save the person raised outside of the church as He is the person born into a Christian family. No matter how sinful, no matter how unlawful, No matter how late, the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that even a man in his dying hours, hanging on a cross next to the crucified Christ, he can ask the Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Because the Scripture promises again and again, again and again, everyone, everyone who calls on Him, everyone who's willing to confess Him as Lord, who's willing to believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, everyone who does that is saved. Their sins are forgiven. Their eternity is secure. So you got no excuse. 
There's no reason to pretend. There's no reason to be deceived. There's no justification for your misunderstanding. No sense that you get to define the rules. God makes the rules, but He's made it incredibly simple. All He wants from you is a response. That you would respond to Him today. That you would receive Christ Jesus as your Lord. And that you would believe that He, the only one to ever live on this earth with no sin, to die with no sin, that He was raised from the dead to secure your forgiveness. That's our challenge to you today. That's our invitation. We don't have an altar call. But I want to invite you that if God is opening your eyes and your ears to hear this call today, come see me. Come down front. I'll be here. Our elders are around. Our Sunday school teachers are around. We beg you. We plead with you. Respond to this message. Let's stand together as we are dismissed with a song and a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for such a beautiful pathway of salvation. We're so thankful that you have made it in your mercy and grace so accessible, so easy. So that we who are so hopelessly trapped in our own weakness and our own failures and our own sins, we're lifted to the very heights of heaven by your simple grace. Lord, we pray for those who are here today who have never responded to you. Or maybe their response is just superficial. We pray for them. Would you save them? Would you open their eyes that they might declare you as Lord? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.